Now, mind, body, health, and politics. Wow! I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. Good morning and welcome to Mind, Body, Health and Politics, a program whose mission is to help you feel good. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Today we have an exciting and compelling show for you. I will be speaking with Paula Darrow, who edited the book Behind the Bedroom Door. The book is a funny, honest and enlightening collection of stories by women of many ages and backgrounds talking about the lessons and foibles of living and loving in America today. The writers have learned valuable lessons about love and sex, which they share with us, reassuring us that whatever we feel, whatever we do or don't do in the bedroom, we're not alone. The book's subtitle is Getting It, Giving It, Loving It, Missing It. And joining Paula and me will be three of the book's courageous writers, Jane Juska, Val Frankel, and Cheryl Strayed. Stay tuned for this exciting interview with four of the most courageous women you have ever heard on air. And now... Our guest today is Paula Darrow, who edited the popular book, Behind the Bedroom Door, a book that shares the personal experiences of 26 women of different ages and backgrounds during their searches for more rewarding love and sex. Paula is Articles Director at Self Magazine and teaches writing at Media Bistro. She has worked for Glamour, Harper's Bazaar, and Lifetime Television. Paula has a degree in British history and literature from Harvard University. We're also going to be speaking with three of the book's talented writers. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm very excited to be here. And we also have Jane. Hello. Hi, Jane. Val, are you there? Yep. And Cheryl? Yes, I'm here. Good morning. Thanks, all of you, for being here today. Paula, let's start with you. Okay. Why did you feel there was a need for a collection of essays about sex? Doesn't our society already focus on sex enough as it is? Well, one thing that struck me was that because our society focuses so much on sex, one thing I was finding was that, in a way, this focus was making it harder for women to talk about sex honestly. I mean, we all know about the big impact of Sex in the City television show and movie that makes it seem like sex comes very easily and that single women have, um, you know, a new guy to be with every week. You know, I've been single for many years, and that was never my experience. And I wanted to do a book that got at the things that you did not hear about on Sex in the City, the things that maybe women weren't saying, the times when they weren't having sex with their partners, or the the messy, embarrassing, um, upsetting things that happen with sex. I feel like with all the 
focus on sex and pressure to have such great sex, what really happens in people's bedrooms um, doesn't really get heard. Did you learn something surprising when you uh, interviewed women about sex? Tell us a couple of things you learned, please, Paula. Well, one thing I learned um, was that sex changes all the time for women, depending on their partner, depending on their phase of life. If you are going through a period where you have are having an unsatisfying sex life, that can change depending on your confidence level. And so, so many of these stories trace experiences where people are in painful situations, then they meet the right person, or they have some kind of inner shift that enables them to have great sex. Um, Another thing that I thought was really interesting was that to me, it seems like for women, sex actually gets better with age. We have such a youth-oriented culture, but in my experience, I'm I'm in my mid-40s, and for many of the writers in this book, it seems like the more confidence a woman has, the more self-knowledge she has, the better her sex life is. And for me, those things have all gotten better as I've gotten older, and I so I think, in a way, I think youth is a bit underrated when it comes to sex. Now, you interviewed people of a wide variety of ages. How old is the oldest person uh, who wrote uh, in this book? Well, I actually didn't interview them. They they wrote their personal essays. They wrote their stories. But but I gathered these women, and the the oldest in the book is with us today, Jane. Oh, so terrific! She can tell us how old she is. Okay, <laughs> I won't put you on the spot. Um, in her 70s. She's in her 70s. Yes. Excellent. Um, Why can't I tell my real age? You, you, you can tell your real age. I'll tell you my real age. I'll be 71 next month. Oh, well, I, be, I win. You win? Uh, yeah, I'm 76. Well, if I look forward to asking, I'm going to ask Paula a few questions for, uh, first, and then we'll come back to you. Um, it, was it hard? I mean, when you going around and collecting these essays, is it hard to get women to talk about they're, they're literally talk about their sex lives? I think it was, it was challenging. I mean, my job at, at self and, and, you know, in my work as a personal essay teacher is to push people to go deeper. And so many of these essays went through many, many revisions as I kind of tried to help people go to the core of the story. And even for myself, uh, in my in the introduction, I wrote about being a sexual late bloomer, and initially, I didn't intend to write about myself at all because I was worried about what my parents would think and what my colleagues would think. So basically, I used the same tactic with myself that I used with the writers, which is it makes it's important for us to be able to tell our stories that this is not just gratuitous it's not erotica we're talking about the emotional side of sex and how it really feels and there's a need for other women to know about this and i think that it really helped everyone to keep that in mind do you happen to have a copy of the book handy in front of you I happen to. It's right in front of me. How about if you read us an excerpt from your introduction to the book? Will you do that? 
I absolutely will. Um, this section of the essay is about when I went off to college. Um, I was a virgin and one of the few of my high school friends who still was. And um, it's what happened when I got there. I'd hoped sex would come more easily to me once I got to college. It was no coincidence that I chose to write my big paper on D.H. Lawrence, notorious breaker of class and sexual barriers and author of the once scandalous Lady Chatterley's Lover. If I had to spend an entire year writing one paper, I reasoned, I could at least make it about sex. After all, my college roommates and I lived so close together that it was impossible to escape the muffled sounds and sometimes, when I couldn't avoid it, sights of the couplings going on around me. There were diaphragms on the mantelpiece above the wood-burning fireplace and birth control pills spilling messily off bathroom shelves, casually displayed badges of honor. But my roommates and I weren't exactly talking about sex, at least not in the way I needed to. I felt fuzzy on the specifics of what exactly was happening behind all those closed doors. Was everyone having orgasms? Did my friends always have sex with the guys they brought back to their beds? My questions felt too prying and naive to ask. Terrific. Thank you. Now, when you talk to other women... Uh, and social situations. I mean, in, in the world I live in, uh, very rarely, if ever, do people sit around and talk about their sex lives. They talk about just about everything else but their sex lives. They may talk about someone else's sex life, such as, such as Bill Clinton's sex life or Tiger Woods' sex life, who they've never met. But they don't talk about what they actually did last night or what they did last week. Do the women that you talk to talk openly to you? Do they say, hey, did you try this or have you ever done that? Um, I actually do think women talk about sex more than men do. I'm curious to know what, what the other writers think about that. Um, they, they, they can tell their experiences later. But one thing I found is that when I told people I was doing a book on women's sexual experiences and kind of the emotional side of sex, everyone's ears perked up, um, and not just in kind of a prurient way, Everyone had a story to share. People started telling me things at parties and restaurants. One woman, when her husband went out to take a call on his cell phone, said she always wanted to try a threesome. Another woman who was in her 70s, who was leading a hike I was taking and had had five children, said she'd never had an orgasm in her life. So I felt like people were just waiting to tell their stories. And, um, and, I, and I do think that um, given the opening, that the stories come flowing out. I wonder, are we progressing with regard to our attitudes towards sexuality, or are we going backwards? You know, 2,000 years ago in, in ancient Rome, which is the country that our founders patterned our country after, after ancient Rome and ancient Greece. 2,000 years ago, the Emperor Tiberius uh, was written about by Suetonius in the lives of the 12 Caesars, and he talked about Tiberius having this island that, that he used to bring all his friends and his entourage to, and on the island, there was nothing but sexual activity going on. He, you'd walk through his gardens and make a left turn, and there were teenagers in various forms of sexual activity. And you'd walk around another curve, and there'd be a few other teenagers. And when Suetonius went swimming, 
he had teenagers whose entire job in life was to swim after him and nibble at his genitals. They were known as they were called Tiberius's minnows. The whole, you know, the whole, all of Rome talked about Tiberius's minnows, and it was very open. Two thousand years later. Bill J- William Jefferson Clinton engages in, in sexual activity with, a, with an intern, and he almost loses his presidency over it because he feels he has to lie. It's something he has to keep secret. And then uh, we have this uh, situation you, you know about with uh, Janet Jackson a few years ago where she showed a nipple, uh, something that's the source of sustenance uh, for everybody on this planet. But uh, women, as you know, can show cleavage. They can show all kinds of breasts, but if they show their nipple a year later, the whole country's still talking about it and the government's still talking about it. So I ask you, are we progressing or are we going backwards? Well, I guess there are different definitions of progress, but I I will say that um, as someone who, you know, has been to Italy and Europe and I just actually got back from Brazil, um, there there was such an openness and sensuality in that culture. Um, men were so affectionate with each other. Couples were so affectionate with each other. Um, you know, women of all sizes were kind of flaunting their bodies on the beach in a way that felt so natural. So I, I do feel like, on the one hand, in, in the United States, we're bombarded with sexual images all the time, um, whether on billboards or in ads or on in, in the movies. Yet, somehow, we're not supposed to be doing it, or you know, we're we're not supposed to reveal any quirks or or any foibles or flaws we might have. So in that way, I feel like there's there's both. You know, I think that that is very confusing. Very confusing. Perhaps our whole country is very confusing, but it sounds like maybe some of the other countries you visited are a little more consistent. We're going to take a short break right now. We're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're here at KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more Behind the Bedroom Door. She bent down and turned around and gave me a wink Said I'm gonna make it up right here in the sink It smelled like turpentine and looked like Indian ink I held my nose, I closed my eyes, I took a drink I didn't know if it was day or night I started kissing everything in sight But when I kissed the cop down, I'm fitted for the night He broke my little bottle of love potion number nine Jane Jessica is the author of the memoirs A Round-Heeled Woman and Unaccompanied Women. Her work has appeared in magazines nationally and anthologies. She's recently completed a novel, A Memoir of 40 Years of Teaching, and she has another essay out called How to Get Old Without Even Trying. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Jane. Thank you. You wrote an essay in this book behind the bedroom door called The Great Pretender. Right. In that essay, you said that it's never too late to come into your own, no pun intended, sexually speaking. Tell us, is it true that sex can really get better all the time? <clears throat> well, it depends on where you start. <laughs> uh, where, where I started 
<clears throat> Excuse me. Certainly. Uh, where I started was in 1957. Um, let me let me just read you a couple of sentences. In 1957, I was 24 and getting diddled in the back seat of my Chevy convertible with my boy boyfriend Jack, where I orgasmed all over the place my first time. It was so thundering wonderful. I I figured I was engaged, <clears throat> and so that's what. Um, I started out with, but uh, come to find out, oh, he didn't want to get married. And then I thought, um, sexual, if I had sex, you had to have an orgasm. I talked to no one about this, not my friends, certainly not my mother. Um, And I think uh, referring to Swetonias and where we're going um, whether or not we're going forward or back, I think in this country we are still suffering from a Puritan hangover. Um, Britain sent over the whole 19th century. And uh, What do you take uh, for that kind of hangover? Uh, can you take two aspirins in the morning and recover? Or, uh, t- <laughs> no, you just have to suffer for a long time, and, and I did. Um, Starting in 1957. Right. And, um and I, it was, my goodness, okay, it was, I was in my 60s before I found actually several men who gave me pleasure. Um, but that's a very long, dry period. <laughs> and I would hope that, that women today don't need to go through that. So, you know, I expected when I got married, that, well, you get married and and then you have sex, and you have pleasant sex and companionship, and then you have a baby. Well, I did get a baby. Um, but then again, <clears throat> and then again, I had to wait a, a, re- a very long time to meet men with who, who could have conversation and sex, sometimes at the same time. So, um, yeah, it was a long time for me. And it also took psychoanalysis. I cannot give psychoanalysis enough credit. Uh, it just made me, it was forced me to read myself. I was like a book, and I had to read myself. And then I got free and clear of a lot of, a lot of um, hang-ups, Protestant. My hangover began to disappear. What happened, in, what happened in there, Jane? I mean, you started out in 57. It sounds like you had a great time in the back of that Chevy convertible, orgasming all over the place with Jack right. and, and so on. But then, and, and you thought, you know, the, you say in your book, I told myself that our prenuptial, the canoodling, wasn't wrong after all. But something must have kicked in afterwards that soured the whole deal. Well, um, he, he didn't want to get married. He ran away. And I, I found him. <clears throat> And he managed to be with another woman, so that was over. So I wanted to get, I wanted to have sex, and so I found a man to marry me. That you had to do that. You couldn't have premarital sex. Um, <clears throat> it was it was wrong. You were just going to get into trouble. My mother told me that any girl who got pregnant out of marriage had only herself to blame, because men had desires, and it was the girl's job to 
help him control these desires. Oh, so that was back in, in the late 50s, prior to what we call the sexual revolution. Have we progressed since then? Yes, yes, yes. It's, uh, uh, and then came the sexual um, revolution, which I completely missed, because I was divorced uh, with a child, and um, I was a single single parent. So what sexual revolution? Lots of other people seem to be having it. And there you were with single child. Yeah. Or single and with I, child. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so, and I was a single um, income. And uh, actually, it sounds pretty dismal, but I had a very good time because I had work I loved, and I had a wonderful kid, and uh, a very good life. But it was manless. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's when I put on tons of weight. So I wouldn't have to worry about men. They wouldn't come around, and they didn't. That was your protective device? Uh-huh. Was it conscious? Uh, or was it retrospective? You look back and you said, that's what I did. I think it's retrospective. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I look, I know that's what I did when I look back, and I'd like to think that uh, occasionally I had a glimpse of what I was doing, uh, but it didn't stop me from doing it. I knew I knew I would lose the weight, and I knew when. Um, <clears throat> and then and then I thought, and then there were no men around. I don't know where they went. Let's let's ask let's ask Paula to quote weigh in on this uh, issue of weight. Paula, you talk about the how the, your weight has affected your sex life throughout. Your, would you say it was conscious, or was it, again was it retrospective as you as you were introspective and looked at your life? Well, I think I had a pretty clear idea that how sexual I felt had to do with the number on the scale. Um, When I was in my early 20s, you know, out in the working world for the first time, and and, um, I lost a great deal of weight and was, I would say, quote-unquote, thin for the first time. And suddenly I was getting all this attention from men that I hadn't gotten before. And it was exciting, but at the same time, it, 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 I found it distressing because it made me feel like, well, all the things I thought about men are true. They only care about how you look. What about my mind? What about my personality? What about my sense of humor? And um, slowly but surely, or actually not so slowly, I put the weight back on because, I don't know, in in some ways I feel like it made me feel like, well, if someone loves me now, they're going to be loving me for the real me. And um, I've gotten past that. I mean, I still struggle with my weight up and down, but, um, you know, I'm I'm fit and I, I look look good and and uh, but yes it 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 um no one wants to feel like they're adored or desired for their looks alone and and I feel like in a way putting the weight on made me be sure that I was kind of loved for me for your inner self yes let's come back to Jane Jane what's the what's the biggest myth for you out there about sex and older women that they don't have it. I think there are lots of older women having sex, um, and <clears throat> they don't talk about it. 
One of the things that happened since the book came out and since I began writing <clears throat> essays, <clears throat> one of them in Paula's book, is that women have felt free to tell me their stories. Um, my own friends, close friends, don't sit around and talk about their sex lives, but when I do a reading or go somewhere and I'm recognized, uh, these stories come out, uh, and many of them are about older, from older women. Uh, some of them are, I'm very happy. Uh, some of them have to do with the physiology of it. Are you dry? Um, do, uh, do you use protection? You know, the practical stuff. Um, sometimes, well, uh, more often than I would like, they want to know how to do what I did. Um, they want advice. They they want to get active themselves. <clears throat> so I think uh, it's a myth that women lose their sex drives, their interest in sex as they age. I don't think so. I, I really agree with that. Um, one thing I, I, I really thought during the book was doing this book was there's kind of this great invisible swath of women, I would say, you know, once you kind of hit your mid to late 40s on up, you're not noticed the way, uh, at least I've found this, you're not noticed in the same way, and you're kind of ignored by our society in a sexual way. I mean, I think people talk about milfs and cougars, but, but in general, but in general, I feel like there, there's this whole group of women from age 50 on up that are sexual beings, extremely sexual, having satisfying sex lives, and we don't really know about them. And I think that was one of the things I hoped the book would do, is kind of show that sex is not just for the young or it's not just for the perfect bodies out there. It's not just for the Sex in the City trio so I, I, I really I, I agree with what Jane just said. Let's break. The number of men declines as we get older. And so I know any number of women who have just shut themselves down because the hope of, um, this, is the, this is the reason they often give. Well, I don't want to get, I don't want to be with a man because all I'd have to do is, is take care of somebody who was sick. And I don't want to do that. But um, I did say quite recently to a group of women in their 70s, and I, well, I said, let's just say that a very nice man came and asked you to have dinner. Would you, would you go out with them? No, they said, because you just get into a trap. And then there was a silence, and then everybody eventually said, yeah, of course I'd go. And there was a certain yearning there. So, yeah, I think it sounds women are sexy. Women are sexy. Let's bring Val Frankel into it. Val Frankel is the author of the memoir, Thin is the New Happy, as well as 14 novels. 14 novels, wow, including The Accidental Virgin, The Girlfriend Curse, and I Take This Man. Val writes for many national magazines. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two daughters. Welcome. 
Val. Thank you. Your essay is in, the, in this book that we're talking about, Behind the Bedroom Door, is called, Ouch, You're Lying on My Hair. <laughs> in there you say that contrary to what you see in the movies, sex is rarely neat and tidy. In fact, you say that in between unwanted body hair, squishing noises, accidentally bumped noses, sex can be messy, smelly, sticky, and klutzy. Is that right? Yeah, that makes it sound so appealing. <laughs> uh, well, I think that my essay was making the point that Paula has already made, and that you know we we think that sex is supposed to be a certain way based on you know the media training that we all get starting at age two months. That sex is for the young, it's for the beautiful, it's perfectly lit. You know, everybody's makeup is perfect, their hair is perfect, their bodies are hairless. And the soundtrack is like a Lionel Richie song. It's not squishing and farting and and belching or you know all those sounds that happen. And so my essay just is sort of the comic relief of the book, actually. Um, that basically says, you know, if you're not making a big messy puddle when you're having sex, you're not doing it right. You, you've got to tell our listeners about I the... I've known that. <laughs> Val, you've got to please tell our listeners the story about you in the, in the bathroom and the, uh, uh, and, and the hair. Ah. Uh, well, I do tell a couple stories in this essay about sexual misadventure. And one of them is going to a party uh, with my husband. And it, the section is that at a friend's party one night where we were, we both drank too much to compensate for the fact that we didn't know anyone, I friskily pulled my game husband into the powder room and knelt in front of him. The crunch of my kneecap on the floor tile should have been a warning, but I was feeling no pain yet. I reached for his belt and started to unzip. I tried a super sexy move of pressing my cheek to his bulge only to ensnare a portion of my hair in the zipper of his jeans. The disentanglement took forever, longer than the oral sex would have had we even gotten to it. I eventually had to yank out a clump of my snarled curls to free myself. By the time we left the bathroom, a line had formed. Each smirking person assumed we'd begrudged his or her inalienable right to bladder relief for our own selfish pleasure. The next day, I hobbled to the hair salon with a dislocated kneecap. I had to get bangs that took months to grow out. And uh, that's just one example. I have a bunch of these <laughs> terrific story. sexual mishaps. Well, uh, yes, sex is comedy, really. I mean, it's it's things go wrong, things are dirty, and it's never the perfect here to eternity moment that we all think it'll be. And even if it is, um, it doesn't stay that way forever. I think a, a lot of the the reason that men men and women find themselves disappointed with a new lover or even an old lover over time is that they think that this perfect sexual moment that we have in our heads of fantasy is just going to, is our birthright that it's just going to go on forever and ever. And, and I think a lot of sexual happiness and sexual satisfaction, which men seem to have ordinarily, like men are, want sex to be dirty and sloppy. And uh, for women, I think if they let go of that idea of the perfect vision of sex, that they would find it more satisfying. That voice is the voice of Val Frankel. She's one of the authors of an art articles in the book Behind the Bedroom Door, and she's telling us that sex can be funny, that it's all right, that we can accept our imperfections, physical and otherwise, and still have 
still have a great sex life. It doesn't have to be all neat and clean the way it is in the movies. That's a wonderful message to bring to our listeners. We're going to take a short break now from Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ, 91.0 FM Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. We're here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We'll be right back after a short break. Love is a banquet on which we feed. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our next guest is Cheryl Strayed, whose memoir, Wild, will be published by Knopf next year. Her debut novel, Torch, was a finalist for the Great Lakes Book Award and was selected by the Oregonian as one of the top ten books of 2006. Welcome, Cheryl. Thanks. It's great to be here. Your essay... In the uh, behind the bedroom door is titled "Tom Cats in Love." Who are the Tom Cats, and uh, tell us about their love? Well, the Tom Cats are me and my husband. Um, we both came into each other's lives at a time when we had both really, you know, spent our our twenties and, in my husband's case, his early thirties as well, being quite sexually promiscuous, and in fact. Um, you know, cheating on, even cheating on partners, you know, with whom we were presumably monogamous. And we met each other at a time when we were both trying to, had both decided that we wanted something different in our lives, that we were kind of ready to um, have true intimacy. Um, And if it wasn't monogamous, at least it was going to be an honest um, relationship. And um, we met and and when I met him, I felt, as I say in the essay, that I'd met my match. It was the first time I'd met anyone who, who really had a sexuality that, that sort of matched mine. And I write about it in the essay. I write about the trajectory of how we went from being um, these promiscuous people to, to coming together and falling in love and, and actually getting married. You, you mentioned writing about it in your essay. Would you read a little bit to us from your essay? Sure, and maybe I should set this up. Um, Please. You know, my, my husband, um, as I said when we met, we were both sort of tomcats, and we ended up doing what we'd really um, been doing for so many years, is that we sort of met and hopped into bed with each other, even though we had both um, sort of, without knowing that we'd each taken sort of private vows not to do that anymore. Um, so we ended up in bed together, and um, I regretted it, and he regretted it, um, and I decided we had gone out. Well, uh, let me just interrupt you there. What do you mean when you say you both regretted it? What was, what did you regret? Well, what happened? You know, I, 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 you know, woke up in the morning and and um, just realized that I had sort of jumped too soon into bed with someone I didn't know, and I had done that many times, and that is really fun, and I think that at a certain um, part of my life, that was what I needed to do. I needed to learn something from that. But by the time I, I met Brian, I 
you know, I, I, you know, one hot guy in bed was like another hot guy in bed, and I didn't need another hot guy in bed at that point anymore. And so um, when I woke up the next morning after having slept with Brian, I, you know, I felt sort of empty and hollowed out, and like I had broken my own word. Um, I wasn't looking necessarily. I wasn't saying to myself that I was looking for, a, you know, a long-term partner, but I certainly felt that the next person I slept with, I was going to be more careful and more considered about it, that I was going to sleep with somebody who I really liked and who I felt that, that in some ways I could, um, you know, be, be partners with. And so when I hopped into bed with Brian, I had violated that. And, you know, I didn't share that with him in the morning. I didn't say, I really regret having slept with you. Um, but that's how I felt. And and Brian felt that way, too. He didn't tell me at the time, but now we're married, and so we can be honest with each other. We always say we're, we're the last people we regret um, having slept with. Um, you know, my husband is, you know, was this one-night stand at first. Um, and then what happened is, you know, I pretty quickly realized that, that I, didn't, I really didn't want to do that, and I decided I was going to have to tell Brian um, that I didn't want ever, ever want to see him again. Um, because I had slept with them, and I just felt like we had squandered whatever relationship, you know, that we could have. So the passage I'm going to read, um, it's, it's good to know that as I read this. It occurred to me that sex was not casual, or if it was, I wasn't. It was serious, and I was serious. I would never take sex casually again, I knew, with a sudden feverish zeal. I wasn't going to be a tomcat anymore, and I wasn't going to sleep with any tomcats either. I, I felt not angry at Brian, but instead grateful to him for helping deliver me to this new place. By sleeping with him and seeing it for the deep mistake it was, I'd finally crossed the bridge into real life. I was simply, deeply, joyfully done with Tom cutting around. And what happens in the essay, the story that unfolds, is that Brian says, okay, I, I regret it too, but I, I want to be your friend. And at the time, I thought that was really just sort of a line I'd heard from a lot of um, people and had also spoken to a lot of people as a way of sort of shaking a lover from my tail. <laughs> Let's be friends, and then you never talk again. But what happened is Brian and I became friends, and um, we then fell madly in love with each other. But we did not sleep together. We did not even touch each other. And instead what happened Until is much we, later on, that is. Right. I mean, yes, eventually we did. But we spent, you know, several weeks um, talking and walking and, and eating together and seeing movies together and reading poetry to each other. And um, I can read it. Should I read a little passage about, about some of that heat during that time? Would you like me to read a little bit? Sure, go ahead. Okay. So we were friends for six exquisite, sexually fraught but entirely platonic weeks. We took long walks and short road trips. We read books out loud to each other and ate pie. We told each other our life stories and painted a cabinet we'd found on the street. We fell silently, madly, honestly in love with each other, but we didn't say that that was ha happening. Most of all, we didn't touch each other beyond a friendly hug at the end of our visit. I thought I would become ill from unacted upon sexual desire. Once in the midst of this time, he poked a finger into a tiny hole that was mid-thigh on my jeans. You've got a hole, he said and took his finger away. I almost came, or fainted, or came so hard I'd have fainted. It makes me feel faint to remember it still. So eventually we, we sort of uh, cracked that tension between us mm -hmm. <laughs> and hopped into bed. But the second time we slept together, we were in love. 
really in love with each other. And um, so the story I tell in my essay in, in this book, Behind the Bedroom Door, is really about that trajectory from being somebody who's very suspicious, you know, because I had failed at monogamy and, and, and had actually been married before when in my early 20s, got married, and I failed at that disastrously. I cheated on my husband and, you know, was not proud of that. Um, once Brian and I fell in love, what happened is I really thought, um, you know, this is great, but there's no way that this can sustain itself because I was very suspicious of monogamy and marriage and um, terrified, really, of, of her, both hurting myself and, and hurting another person because I felt that I couldn't be faithful um, after a certain period of time, or at least I believed that was going to be the case. Well, now you've been monogamous with uh, Brian, you say, in your book for more than 13 years, and I'm wondering, to what extent, if any, do you believe that your tomcatting around contributed to your then being able to be monogamous? In other words, did you, as the expression goes, did you get it out of your system, sow your oats, and so on? Uh, sometimes patients of mine, the young people ask me, they say, you know, it, I'm afraid that if I connect with somebody when I'm very young, then I'm going to regret it later on because I'll always be wondering, what, would it, what did I miss? You know, what did I not go out and do? Right. I, I think that, I mean, I think there's some truth to that. I think that you always have to sort of make, take the risks and make the leaps. And if you happen to really fall madly in love with someone when you're 19, you just have to follow that trail. But, you know, at the same time, I do, I feel really thankful um, that, you know, I had all the sexual experiences that I had um, in my 20s. I think that they did prepare me um, for a relationship, a monogamous relationship. I don't have those questions anymore about, um, you know, what it would be like to sleep with so-and-so and so-and-so. You know, I, I got, I, like I said, I, I learned that, that sort of sex with one hot acquaintance is kind of like sex with another hot acquaintance, and it's not very interesting to me anymore. That doesn't that's not to say that um, monogamy, you know, now it's been almost 15 years that Brian and I have been monogamous. And it's not to say that, that um, monogamy doesn't have its challenges. You know, I certainly think, um, you know, really Paula and Jane and Val have all spoken about how sex is supposed to be a certain way in our culture. And I think that, that that's really true um, when it comes to sex and love or sex and marriage. And, you know, there is a sense a deep, a deep, you know, story, uh, a sort of mythic story that once you fall in love, that the love will sustain your sexual attraction for your partner. And, you know, that um, so often is not the case, which is why so many people, you know, cheat on their spouses or lie to their spouses or don't have sex with their spouses because they don't desire them anymore. And so I really, Brian and I have, have had to uh, um, talk about all of these things and be really honest with each other to keep our sex life interesting and hot. Um, it's really important to me that I have a good sex life. And I think that being a tomcat, being somebody who was, um, you know, sort of an, a, a sort of sexual outlaw, especially as a woman, you know, it, I've always been really honest about um, my sexuality. And I think that that has contributed greatly to keeping the monogamy I have with my husband uh, happy and fulfilling. Um, that constant conversation, that we don't just sit back and say, well, we're in love, so we're going to have great sex for the rest of our lives, because that hasn't been the case. You know, we've certainly had to go um, over some bumps. Well, that's certainly validated by the experts that, uh, that we've had on this program uh, over the years, namely that communication between the couple 
is the, the highest priority and that when the communication dissipates, so does everything else and certainly the, uh, the sexual life dissipates at the same time. Um, you're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The telephone number here, should you have a question for one of our guests, is 707-937-5103. That's 707-937-5103. We welcome your calls. You've mentioned, uh, all of you have mentioned at one time or another the word marriage. Uh, we had a, a, a prominent national expert on marriage on the program, Dr. David Geisinger, some while ago. And he said that um, research from around the world indicates that we are not genetically uh, set up for marriage, that marriage and coupling two people together for life is going against the grain of our actual DNA. Uh, what do you, what are the, any of you think about that, please? Well, doesn't the research also show that married men live longer and are happier well, the opposite is true of married women. Yes, that uh, it does also show that uh, that men who either live in a relationship with a woman or are married do live longer. Uh huh. And and yes, and women don't, and, and they're not as happy. And women don't, and they're not as happy. What do you make of that? Well, I I've been married twice, and I find being married to be a much more happy state of mind for me personally. Is that Jane? No, this is Val. That's Val. Uh -huh. I mean, I've had. Um, Lots of single time in my life, you know, in my life as a single person. And, you know, pursuing sex, pursuing boyfriends, getting them, being disappointed by them, disappointing myself. And being married for me is preferable. And also just the point that our DNA isn't, you know, married, you know, we're not built genetically to pair off for life. But, you know, the DNA was formed back in the time when there was no societal constructs that now make marriage a more harmonious state of, of being in a society. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to say, okay, yeah, it's my genetic structure to have many sexual partners, and we all have had many sexual partners, meanwhile. Uh, but it's to live within the world that, where we exist that marriage is a, a nice way to be. Yeah, for me, I'm 46, and I've never been married, and, and but I've been in kind of marriage-like relationships long-term, you know, five years, five years, five years. And, and um, for me, it's not so much about marriage as what feels different when you are with someone that you really care about and feel committed to. And... What I've seen so much of, um, especially among college-age women and kind of this hookup culture and friends with benefits, is that I, I think women, in a way, are selling themselves short by, by thinking that, you know, that's all they can get and that's all they deserve. And I just, I would say for me... Uh, I've never been married, but I, I am kind of built to love deeply and have kind of a deeper sexual relationship that's really based on an emotional connection. So marriage or not, um, I, I think that the most satisfying experiences I've had have been when I've had a very deep connection with someone. We've got just a couple of minutes uh, left 
Is there anything that uh, any of the three of you would like to pass on just succinctly to our listeners? Uh, I, I, Cheryl, I really love that you've got a whole line. I remember when I read the book, uh, I laughed out loud with that line. <laughs> well, I, I think that I would just like to say that women should feel optimistic when it comes to their sex life and our ability to feel pleasure and that pleasure can come at any age. As Jane discovered, it can come in your 60s, it can come in your 70s. You can have a long dry spell. I I talk in the book about having had a seven or six year period of celibacy and you know, I found love, I found connection, I found commitment. I mean, it, it really depends on the partner and where our confidence is. So I just kind of want to leave women with that message that sexuality is not a fixed thing, that in women especially, I think it's kind of ever-evolving and can always get better. Well, I have I have some advice. People ask me all the time because I'm so old, what advice do you have for us? So this is my advice. If you're not having fun, stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's and I have, a, on the other end of the spectrum, I have two little kids. I have a four-year-old and a five-year-old. This is Cheryl talking. And part of my husband and I, what we've come to at different periods, especially when our kids were babies, was that we would just look at each other and say, you know, we're not having sex right now. We're, we're having a sort of um, sexless marriage for this little era, and it feels like, okay, but let's sustain our physical intimacy and talk to each other about not having sex and then talk to each other about how to have sex again when it's time. Uh-huh. And I know that I needed to take that um, just physically. I was just, I had too many babies hanging off me. I didn't want a man hanging off me too. So that was part of keeping our sex life alive. Thank you. I'm going to have to stop right now. Okay. We're coming to the end of the interview. Thank you, Paula Darrow, Jane Jessica, Cheryl Strayed, and Val Frankel for bringing to us Behind the Bedroom Door, Delacorte Press. You can get it. You're going to want to read it. You're going to want your teenagers to read it as well as your young adults. It's a terrific book. The takeaway for me from this program is that sex amongst women, also amongst men, is something that we can talk about. It is pervasive. It's all around us. It's not something that we have to make a secret about. We shouldn't continue to make a secret about it. What was it that one of our authors said today? We inherited this from the English, and we're suffering from the hangover, and it's 240 years later. Let us see if we can reduce the pain of that hangover by having open communication with each other. We can talk to each other. We can think about this topic. We can meet with others and talk about it. We can even plan. We can take action about what we're going to do to make for better communication, and therefore a happier and healthier sexual life. Thank you for listening and participating. In addition to you, our listeners, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is made possible by our producer, Ron Rogers, and our engineer, Mike DeLora. I will be back in exactly two weeks with Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, so please join me at that time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller saying goodbye and reminding you that good health is a necessary ingredient for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I never knew, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself.